Coming up on this week's show, we look at a long-lost Atari Jaguar game. A sexy black metal new NES. And we chat to Imagine Legend John Gibson. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 215. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's podcast. Now, this is a show for you if you remember sitting there waiting for your Commodore 64 game to load. Maybe going to have tea and a cup of tea while it actually loaded up. Or maybe you remember blowing into a cartridge. If you've ever done that, this is a podcast for you. Every week, we reminisce about the, the golden age of video games and bring you a special guest who was involved in the making of them most weeks as well. Now, today, we're going to be joined by someone who pretty much everyone we've spoken to about this chap always says one word, legend. Absolute legend, yeah. We managed to talk to John Gibson and... We contacted him directly from Thailand, actually, yeah. which was pretty awesome. First first guest we've done from Thailand. And John is an absolute legend. He basically was the lead programmer for Imagine Software, yeah. you know, one of the biggest software houses in the UK. And they created, of course, the legendary Bandersnatch. I never created it. <laughs> Tried well, to. <laughs> well, we'll find out if yeah. they did or not and, <laughs> and how it was kind of used in the future, but also... You remember the documentary with Imagine. Oh, commercial breaks? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. And that was all about how the kind of bankruptcy happened at Imagine and the bailiffs came in. Well, we've got some great tales of kind of the pranks that happened in the office, but also how they managed to retrieve the source code from the place whilst the bailiffs were there and quickly escape. So <laughs> fantastic stories with John this week. Now, because Imagine, we've done shows about Imagine before, and actually um, we interviewed Ian Grieve um, from Cygnosis the other week as well, who worked with John in the past. Uh, and really, they were the epitome of um, live fast, die young, weren't they, Imagine? Totally, totally. Fast cars, lots of bling, helicopters, madness. Yeah, then spectacularly went bankrupt on a documentary that was being filmed by the BBC at the time. Uh, Ocean actually bought the remnants of Imagine Software, but it really was, I mean, for kind of the, the early British video game industry, I think a lot of lessons were learned from Imagine. And John, he was right there in the middle of it all. And I think if you watch that documentary, they refer to him as like granddad in the documentary because he was like the only guy there over 30 or something. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. such an interesting one. And, and surprisingly, he's never seen Black Mirror as well. So right. he's, he's never seen Bandersnatch. And, you know, we, we go into stuff about Denton Designs as well, yep. which was the kind of company that came from Imagine afterwards. Now, like you said, he lives in Thailand these yeah. days. So you actually recorded this one on your own at home. Yeah. <laughs> because it was like, what, seven in the morning or something when yeah, you did it? Yeah, the time it? difference is crazy, so I had to get up early and be sharp and on it for the interview. Yeah, so Ravi's chat with John Gibson, which I've never heard him talk about those days before, you know, on video or podcast, so a bit of a first, I've actually. I've seen some text interviews yeah. with him, but I haven't heard him on a podcast before, so, yeah, uh, so touch wood with the first. Really? Well, even because I've not heard this yet, so I'm going to be a listener to this one, I'm going to enjoy Ooh. it. So uh, John Gibson is coming up on the show talking about Imagine and lots more as well in around 20 minutes from now. Now, you did mention then that, you know, you had to record this at home because we couldn't get in the studio that time in the morning. Now, we did talk about this on last week's podcast, the fact that we don't actually own the studio, we're limited with the amount of time we can get in here each week, and the future of it isn't guaranteed. So we asked for your help to essentially set up a dedicated retro hour studio. And can I just say, we're blown away by your support so far. You know, the response has been absolutely amazing. We've both got patrons. I've got 12 patrons. I've got you, four. I've you've got four, yeah. so they've not done very well. <laughs> but this is absolutely astonishing. Thanks so much, guys, for your support, for your tweets. And, you know, a lot of people said, this is a great idea. And we're, we're really pleased that you guys are like the idea because it took us quite a while to come up with this one. Four years, I think, yeah. We're, I mean, we were a bit nervous about doing it, weren't we? Yeah, we were really, really nervous about it. And Dan was really worried it was just going to, like, fall on its face yep. straight away. Because you do sometimes worry, like you're just kind of like begging it a little bit. But I know we, you mean. we are really, really, really thankful and really, really grateful that people have actually gone. Yeah, you know what? We'll support them and stuff. So it's been absolutely amazing to see it. I didn't think people liked us that much. Yeah, no, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it means we can, you know, maintain this quality for the future. So yep. you guys are assuring that the show is uh, going to continue in a high quality. Yes. Yeah, so if you'd like to uh, help us with our goal of building our studio, we're you know well on our way there. We're not quite there at that stage. We can afford it every month at the moment, but you know. If you'd like to back us on Patreon, we have got some exclusive rewards on there as well. Now, in the next week or so, you're going to get your um, first episode of our second podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, which is going to be a little preview of a documentary that we've been working on recently, all about 
the importance of preserving video game history. Now, it's around 20 minutes long, this little documentary that we've been working on. Not only will you get to hear it before anybody else, but also another great advantage of putting it out to our Patreon backers is we can get your feedback on it as well. So we really would appreciate any feedback you've got on it too. So if you want to check that out, I mean, there are plenty more perks as well, including, you may have noticed if you are a backer, you got this week's episode a little bit early. Now, I can't promise that we'll do that every week. I'll be honest, there are some weeks where we're in here at like 10 p.m. on Thursday night recording an episode that's going to be released at midnight. But where we can, we'll put it out a little bit early for our Patreon backers too. Plus plenty more perks for supporting us in our goal of building this studio. If you want to find out all of them and how you do it, it's all on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. And another thing that I just wanted to mention as well, you guys are not going to miss out on the advertising deals. I've had a few people say, oh, I'm a patron, I've got the ad-free version, am I going to miss out on the cheap retro gaming deals no just check on the show notes and all the links will be in there if you click them there are affiliate links for us as well absolutely we've got some big news this week as well now obviously we're well into preserving the history of video games one of the reasons we do this show is to make sure that these stories last forever and we get them documented but there is something new now uh this is called vhs i love the name as well (laughs) so america has it very locked up when it comes to like video game preservation and heritage you know the home of silicon valley they've got the computer history museum they really know what they're doing where in the uk we've got a lot of museums organizations libraries collectors guys like us that love video games as well so A network has been launched by the National Video Game Museum. Um, You know, our friends that were previously in Nottingham and they've just moved to Sheffield now. And this is a really exciting incentive. Um, We're members of this as well. And, you know, the Science Museum are involved, Baspar University. BFI. Yeah, the British uh, Library, the British Film Institute, um, Cambridge Computer Museum as well. So this is going to be a big network and the whole aim of it is going to be to kind of share each other's resources and work out the best practice and the best way of preserving these games. Because, you know, it's gone, especially with computer heritage in Britain, it's gone so quickly and, you know, other systems come in and stuff and will they dominate the conversation? Has stuff been missed? Has stuff been put to the wayside so you know i think this is a a really important thing for video game heritage but also for british heritage and it's called video game heritage society so vhs which i I love the initials on that anyway but i think it's a it's a great idea because i mean we've been actually looking into this you know kind of outside of this recently the the preservation aspect of things and because the industry is still so young it's only like just over 40 45 years old Mm. really people really saw how they had to preserve books and movies and that kind of thing. But I think, really, it actually came quite late in the day with video games. It only seems to be in the last, like, 10, 15 years that people have actually thought, actually, we should be saving this stuff for future generations. And it's kind of like, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. We can still read a book from, like, 100 years ago. You can watch a movie from 50 years ago. But often you can't play a game that was only out 15 years ago because it's, you know, maybe the source code's gone, the server's gone. There needs to be an effort to preserve it. it's not in the libraries. Yeah. It's not stored correctly. And, you know, I think there's been a movement recently to actually look at the spaces that these games are being played and created. So the Oliver Twins, they had their bedroom that was recreated in the um, gallery, which is just absolutely fantastic because kids would not have experienced the old CRT TVs, teletext. Seen a 70s bedroom yeah, even. Yeah, stuff like that. And I think, you know, that's another important point, preserving the, the stories and the people behind these as well, which is obviously something we've always wanted to do. So it's great that we are, you know, founding members of the uh, the VHS, and I'm sure there'll be events coming up um, over the next year or so. We'll, of course, keep you up to date with that on the podcast. Now, let's get into this week's news stories before we chat to John Gibson. Uh, <laughs> you are very excited about this one. A black metal analogue NT. Yeah, so we know the analog MT is like the prime recreation of the NES. You know, it's absolutely beautiful. It plays like 99.9% of the games very accurately. Well, they've created this limited edition NT Mini Noir console. (laughs) This is, it's jet black Yeah, and it's shiny. Ah, yes, but uh, they've improved the um, cartridge slots updated the interface but they've also got a uh, gold plated ios 
which is fantastic. <laughs> now, there's this article here with a picture of it on Gear Patrol. Um, I, I love the fact that I was saying there's no need to hide it when the guests come over now because it actually looks like something that you would be proud to have on yeah, your TV. It, it looks like like a new piece of technology. Yeah. Like, it's some sort of, like, oh, what's that? Is that your, like, digital set-top box? Do like, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, like, you're fancy. Streaming or something. You're like, no, it's my Nintendo. <laughs> but I can it, play it, Duck Hunt in 8K. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the PlayStation 5 prototype. Yeah, it does, yeah, it does doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. yeah kidding, actually. Um, so at the moment, these are limited edition. So these are going to be, I mean, like anything like this, they're going to end up being collector's items, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. so uh, you, you can order them now, apparently. So I think that's really cool. I, mean, I haven't got an Analog NT, but I know Analog, obviously, they did a lot of different systems over the years. You had the Mega Drive recreation. A company that have actually got a really good reputation for recreating these classic systems with a lot of love and attention as well, and apparently you know, they play them really well from everything I've read about them. So it's cool that they do stuff like that just for the fans, you know, something that's a little bit different as a thank you, I think. Now, the Atari Jaguar is another system that I'm a big fan of. And I always love finding out about unreleased games because, I mean, as, as a Jaguar collector, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. So I often look through, like, you know, say, lists of games that were going to be released on the Jag. And then you kind of get after about late 1994, early 1995, and it's a list that generally says, cancelled, 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 everything that was meant to come out on it, it just got thrown on the shelf. But over the last, like, couple of decades, we've seen... A lot of games that were maybe actually quite close to completion, either the source code gets released or people make videos about them or the developers that worked on them kind of talk about them and, and give a bit of information on them. So there's been a bit of news this week then about another long-lost Atari Jaguar game. Yeah, so this title um, was for the Jag and it was a kind of cyberpunk roleplay game. Right. But it was really using the Jag's hardware, like really pushing the kind of video on it and uh, the capabilities and stuff like motion capture and digitizing people as well but um it seemed massively late on in the kind of game i was gonna say it does actually look like you know a half decent ps1 game right which you can't say about many jaguar games in my opinion no um so how late are we talking here um it was kind of 1994 yeah they they were saying but um you know a lot of filming got done for it and uh it was uh by a company called black ice and it was going to be called white noise as well these guys like i mean there's a picture in this article of uh, the black ice white noise team (laughs) posing in front of the batmobile um outside atari's headquarters and these guys look like they could have been in like like a mid nineties um, like hip hop group or they something. They look like something out of the crow. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all, all kind of like Michael Jackson as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you want to play the sample of it, Dan? Um, all I know is, when I'm finished here at the end of the day, I'm supposed to be able to leave, and I can't. I can't jack out of here. <laughs> <laughs> There's something very. Night trap about the yeah. He sounds like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can tell, it did have that bad nineties FMV kind yeah. of acting and voiceover. But it was going to be a full open world adventure title. Explore an entire city, have different inhabitants that you could interact with, and this is ages before GTA Three as well. So really interesting. But it seems that the Atari executives never really got it and. Uh, went out and spent most of the money on drinking. So check out this article, and uh, it's got lots of details about the full story of this crazy game. Because it looks good. I mean, there, are, there is some gameplay footage of it in here as well. Like you said, it's kind of that 3D kind of open-world third-person game where you can walk around. It's like a mix of a PS1 and a Sega CD game. Yeah, yes, like with, with that, the FMV bits. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it kind of feels like to me looking at it. Well, it was on the cusp between those yeah. systems, wasn't it? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. And, I mean, there are, that, there are games on the Jag that... There's one. There's Highlander is on the Jaguar, and that, okay. that is sim- it's a terrible game because the fighting mechanics are really difficult to grasp. I want to play it now. <laughs> I think AVGN did a video about it a couple of years ago. Oh, did he? It was one where they sit down. I've got a feeling it might be a Jaguar CD game, actually. Oh, okay. So he sits down, he plays it, and there's only like eight games or something on the yeah, Jaguar yeah. CD. So, But yeah, I mean, the, the concepts of it were there, though. They kind of walk in around the, the exploration where you could walk around this world. So you see the Jaguar could actually handle that quite well. And this game actually looks a hell of a lot better than Highlander did, for example. So 
the fact they've got it in a video here, I wonder if, if there's going to be a way to play that then. You know, so it looks yeah, like there's, there's, a, there's a few bits. I think they say they've got the alpha version. Right, okay. Mm. And there's a few bits of kind of walking in and out of the buildings and stuff like that. Cool. Well, I'll... I'll keep an eye on that because I've got a Jaguar CD, you know, one of the, one of the few that have got a working CD. One of the seven yeah, that still so work. Probably not many of them out there. Like, I'm always you know, excited for new games to play in it, being that I haven't got very many. There's some good homebrew stuff that's come out in the Jag in recent years, but getting like a game of that kind of level, where that kind of level of production went into it, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. So. Yeah, because I think, you know, a lot of Jaguar games, they choose the easy route. Yeah. And maybe this one was directly hitting the hardware and, do it using both processors. Even like FMV with actual actors in, I don't think I've actually seen that in a Jag game before. So the fact that it could do that is pretty cool, I think. So if you want to check out that video, I'll put it in our show notes along with everything else we talked about at the retrohour.com. Now, at the moment, there's a little system here called the RG350. Um, another one of these kind of handheld retro systems. So this one looks pretty good, though. This kind of reminds me a bit of like the Switch Lite, but compressed a little bit. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit more powerful than the other ones, and and that makes it good because uh, you get really good performance for PlayStation games, right? Uh, which you know, it's always been a bit hard to kind of get nice performance on something that's not a a, a Sony PlayStation product. Um, the Pocket Go was one that we covered yeah. previously that was a little bit cheaper than this device, but um, it seems quite nice handheld. I like the inclusion of. Two thumbsticks as well as I was, I was the literally D-pad. just thinking about that how it's got the twin thumbsticks, and not many of these do actually have that. And then they're like, "Oh yeah, it's PS One games," and you're just like, "Yeah, how?" But yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's got like a slightly nicer build quality from the look of it, you know, from a few that we've kind of covered in the past. Yeah, because they were saying the pocket go thumbsticks were too short, and they they didn't. They they were useless pretty much, but these thumbsticks are almost perfect according to this article. So. What kind of systems can it emulate then? I mean, look, look it looks like there's PlayStation games and stuff on it. Uh, as well. pr- pretty much, you'll be able to do like maybe Dreamcast will be a bit laggy, right. but you'll be able to do your N64, your PlayStation, all the kind of stuff that you could do on one of these like Raspberry Pi um, portable handheld devices. That's good though, because I haven't actually got any of these kind of recent handhelds. Mainly for the reason that I don't see them out and about. I think if I walked into like game and saw one of those for like 40, 50 quid, I'd be tempted to pick one up. But I've got my Switch, which I generally yeah. use, but obviously you can't get all your old ROMs and stuff on there. I think I would like one of these machines where you can maybe put like maybe all your Lynx games and all your Game Gear games and that kind of thing. That'd be quite a cool little handheld, I think, to take Yeah, around. and it's saying, you know, it, it feels a bit more expensive, this one, but also it can run up to eight hours, Yeah, which is... Very useful to have. Yeah, and they've priced it at seventy four dollars. Yeah, which is not bad. Isn't yeah. too bad. Yeah, we've, we've seen some for a lot more than that, and it's kind of between the switch and the pocket go, isn't it? Like yeah, that, that area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think you know we're a bit spoiled when it comes to handhelds these days as well. I was playing my Lynx the other day again, um, <laughs> playing. Uh, I used to call it Toki, but Toki, Toki, as they pronounce it. Yeah, I was playing that in it the other day, and it's a great version of it. Which I mean, I'll, I'll talk more about why I've been playing that in a minute. Um, but <laughs> just looking at that screen and stuff, I thought oh, we've come a long way. That's one area of gaming where I think you know today we just kind of take it for granted. You see, I got it. I got my Lynx like. 12 years ago or yeah. something like that 11 years ago my wife bought it me for a birthday and I remember thinking like oh god this is amazing like I love it I love it kind of thing and I think maybe it's just once again it's like rose coloured glasses kind of thing <laughs> but um, yeah isn't it amazing how far we have come with these things like, it's like you get one of these for like $70 now yeah exactly on it. it's awesome so yeah keep, keep them coming we do love checking out these stories now a friend of ours Ravi Adam um Recently made me very jealous. Talking about Atari. He dropped me a little link the other day. He goes, you never guess what I've got. I've got a new system. Only an Atari Falcon. Oh, God. I was like, you, yeah. I've always wanted one of those. They go for so much money now. The last Falcon I saw, I think, on eBay last month went for about £1,500. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I really want one because the Falcon Towers, you can add some fat Radeon cards in and just go absolutely mental. <laughs> so I'd like to have a play with that at one point, but I can never afford those things. Well, the Atari Falcon was, um, it was a, a very late Atari computer. And it was kind of like when they were developing the Jaguar and um, the ST was kind of phasing out. Wasn't on sale for very long. But one thing that the... The Falcon was actually, it was continued by an audio company who kept it going just because the Atari ST was standard in the audio industry. I mean, you look at stuff like, um, there's a video on YouTube of Fatboy Slim, 
Yeah. Talking about, it's with Boast, I think, and he's talking about his home studio and that. In the background, there's still an Atari ST there that he uses in this production oh, now wow. to get that gritty old school and sound. And he's, he's, he's running Funk Soul Brother on it as yeah. well. Like, he made on the original yeah. Atari as well. And Utah's saying so we had on, I mean, they use EST for a lot of their tracks too. And Cubase, which obviously went on to be bigger on the Mac platform later on, something else that started on the ST. Now, there's an article here on a music radar um, talking about that kind of early music production software. Yeah, the uh, digital audio workstations. DAOs. DAOs, <laughs> basically, yeah. And, you know, you used to have sequencers and uh, you used to have trackers, but yeah. the digital audio workstations were the ones where you could, you really had the sequence in there, but you had the editor, you had absolutely everything. And those, those DAOs are basically leading on to stuff like Logic, Ableton Live. Now, the reason that we're talking about this is uh, you think, oh, this isn't a music podcast, but the ZX Spectrum Next is now a digital audio workstation, well, okay. which is crazy. They've got free sound chips in the Spectrum Next, and they've released um, a program called NextDAO. Right. And you can basically use nine channels now on the Next. You can sequence music, um, just hours and hours of fun, you know. It's got 64 sound patches as well. A piano roll editor uh, that you can use, you know, you can change the arrangements. And I think this is going to add to the Spectrum music scene and we're going to get some absolutely crazy compositions coming from this. Uh, there's a copy of Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby. Let's have a little listen. This is Human League. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Don't You Want Me Baby by the yeah. Human League on the ZX Spectrum next. I love it already. You can hear the multiple channels there. <laughs> Everyone's head is nodding around the table. <laughs> I'm throwing think... up some gang signs, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no one to mess with you if you had this, Joe. Oh, yeah, no. You need this in your band. But doesn't I it do sound... need this in my band. Gritty. <laughs> doesn't it sound like a, a lot more depth in the tune? Here's a lot going on there. Yeah. This is like how many channels? Uh, nine. I'm nine channels, that's crazy. I need to get Norman Cook at the Spectrum next. Oh, yeah. yeah I was quite disappointed that it got turned off then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the link, Joe. You can play, you. It, play it at your own leisure. Thank you very much. Um, but it's quite, I mean, the, the next has only really been in the fa- hands of like fans for like a couple of weeks. So Yeah, so great right. that this development software is out there. I was reading the other day, someone was on about putting a SID chip in the, in the next, and everyone was like, sacrilege! Yeah, I think there was talk of it. <laughs> I think they originally... They originally were playing with some SID chips in yeah. there, and then there were some issues, we'll see. Yeah, so that'd be awesome. So the more, more I hear about it, Nostalgia Nerd did a really good video. I don't know if you saw that. About a 50-minute video um, all about the next. I was watching it the night, and I was like, why didn't I back that Kickstarter when it was out? <laughs> I remember seeing that as well. I was like, yeah, hopefully they can do a second run. And I'm made my mind up, I'm getting one, 100%. Now, before we get into our chat this week with the legend that is John Gibson, Let's talk about a game that I remember we last talked about in the podcast. I think when we had, was it Big Boy Barry? We had yeah, him on. Yeah, yeah. Now, we were talking about this um, game, and I remember playing this. It was one that you'd always see at the seaside that, you know, you'd want to go on, but you wouldn't give you, I think it was about three quid or something, maybe even a fiver sometimes. It was Sega's G-Lock. Now, that was in that rotating arcade cabinet. It's like a roller coaster. It's like, like a way that it like strap you in. It's like being in a washing machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of those gyroscope things, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. You were in the middle with a CRT TV. Yep. Like strap that. It's and insane I'll, when you think about it now. And after a day on the beach at Scarborough, after you've had like candy floss and uh, ice cream, <laughs> yeah, rock. donuts, and, yeah, um, all mixed down with a milkshake, going on that afterwards generally wasn't the best idea. Um, you'd be a bit green after it, but it was always. I remember there'd be a crowd of people around it all the time watching it mm. just because it was so cool. And that was when Sega were like really the kings of the arcade back then. But obviously the game that was on it, um, it was G-Lock Air Battle. A lot of people think it was Afterburner on there, but it wasn't. It was this game called G-Lock that was made for it. Well, now <laughs> it turns out you're going to be able to play it at home. Yeah, on your Switch. And I think this is cool <laughs> because you can recreate it on an office chair <laughs> imagine, if they did, imagine if they did that Nintendo Labo with it. 
<laughs> that would be and it came with a, gi- a ginormous cardboard kit, which is like the size of a car in oh, your room. Oh, that needs to happen. And you've got your office chair in the middle of it all. <laughs> oh, my God. Go to the pleasure beach you and go sh- on the big one. You strapped him with some cardboard straps over your shoulders. Well, I mean, this is part of the Sega Ages series where they've been bringing out, you know, stuff like Sonic 2, um, Puyo Puyo 2 has been out on there as well. But it's... It seems a really weird choice of game for them to release because it seemed like a game that was so tied to the hardware. Um, yeah, you, you, like, is it even that good? Is it just the hardware which we all remember? Like, because I, I, you know, obviously I'm aware of the G Lock and stuff and got memories of it. I couldn't tell you a thing about the actual game. Well, it's <laughs> like, weird as well because they haven't called it G Lock Air Battle, which was the original. They've called it G Lock R360. Right, yeah. Well, R360 was a machine. Yeah, right? yeah. So maybe just to inspire that. Oh, I remember the R360, you know. I've got a feeling when you're playing it with the your Switch and the, the analog contract, it's not going to have obviously the same effect. <laughs> if your grand's playing, she'll do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess. If they ever bring out a virtual reality headset, imagine playing that in VR. Oh my god, yeah. (laughs) I threw up playing VR games at the best of times. To get the real experience, you'd have to go and, like, and I don't advise anyone does this, go sit in the tumble dryer or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be the way to play. But what an interesting choice. I think it's cool, though, that they're actually bringing out games like this and not just the the obvious titles that we've bought like a million times on every different console we've bought the last 20 years. More like this, I'd like to see, I think. Now, before we get into our chat with John Gibson, let's give a big thank you to our loyal supporters, the people who allow us to come in and record the Retro Hour podcast for you every single week and bring you incredible guests. And these are people who have either backed us on Patreon or made a one-off donation via our PayPal. You can find both of those on our website at theretrohour.com. And your help is hugely appreciated. Not only will you secure the future of this podcast, but also you will get a mention on the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you Gary Heather, Christian Bradstreet, Sean Clifton, and the Civitas Universe who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same on our website at theretrohour.com. Now this is a bit where every week we give a little shout out to other retro projects and communities and things that we've been playing this week. I want to give a big thank you to... Two podcasts I've been on this week. I've been busy this week, boys. You've been cheating. I've been all over the place. It's hanging a fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I was on Arcade Perfect. Oh, great podcast. Um, which, yeah. again, that was why I was playing Toki, because we did, um, it was really funny, it was last Saturday night I recorded it, and uh, the guys who do Arcade Podcast, they're, they're, they're based in Australia. So it was like nine o'clock on a Saturday night, um, and I, I was there with a glass of wine. They're both having the morning coffee. A little bit out of whack in that regard, but yeah, it was, you know, it was such a good laugh doing it. And we're talking about Toki and comparing all the different versions that have come out over the years. Oh, because they did a new remake as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah so we started with, um, you know, the arcade version. We talked about the really weird Mega Drive port that was like no other version, any any other platform. Uh, the Lynx version, the Amiga version. Then we went into even stuff like the NES, the Commodore 64 version. And then talking about the latest version. Uh, that came out on the Nintendo Switch. So that was a real laugh, actually. So if you want to check that out, I think it was nearly two hours long we did it. Um, probably don't listen to it around the kids, I'm just saying. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to check it out, I'll put a link. And also uh, the guys from uh, Console Shock as well. Um, we did an episode talking about Mac gaming. Oh, which wow. Not something you hear about all that yeah. often, but it was about um, yeah running like old 68K and PowerPC Mac games. So if you want maybe a different system to collect for, we give you a load of tips on uh, collecting for the Mac and all these old school games as well. So if you want to check out either of those episodes I've been on over the last week, I'll put those in our show notes for you this week. What have you been checking out this week then? An absolutely amazing site, which is called replacementdocs.com. And basically it scans of manuals. Cool. But gaming manuals. So there's absolutely everything here. You've got all the systems, uh, Xbox 360, you've got Lynx, you've got classic Macintosh stuff, MSX stuff, N-Gage manuals. Well. If, you, if you want to get manuals for your N-Gage games. I need, I need some of them. Yeah, yeah. So it also helps for people who um, got games without manuals back in the days. Yeah, like <laughs> and, most of us. And, and maybe stuck at a certain point, yeah. then uh, you can actually see what's going on. So uh, it's a great site, replacementdocs.com, and go to the downloads download manuals section. And uh, the Simpsons Hit and Run, that was a favourite of yours. Yeah, so we spoke about Simpsons Hit and Run potentially getting a remake yeah. a couple of months ago, and 
you know, there's still been a few rumours flying about about that. But uh, somebody has gone out of their way, you know, a devoted fan, and made kind of like a tech demo of a potential kind of like Simpsons hit and run, but they've made it in... It's the PlayStation 4 hit Dreams, right. which I'm not too familiar with, but from what I understand, it's like a development kit for the PlayStation 4. Okay. And somebody's like remade the first level of Simpsons Hit and Running It, and it 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 looks like it's kind of weird to like look at, but it's got like the game physics and stuff down in it, right? You know, and it's like in like a nice HD, but then it's quite blocky looking. But I just thought it'd be a cool little like you know check it out, kind of have a look at the video. Uh, have a look at the footage. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and I'm really... Is that you playing that? <laughs> That's Ravi watching it. It's Ravi watching that, yeah. it in the background. And, you Copyright know, strike for the Simpsons music. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I'm, I'm still hopeful that the uh, the full remake's coming. But I just thought this was really cool that somebody out there loves it more than I do. Yeah, and gone and out of their way to remake it. playing it. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> that's coming from. from. <laughs> but I figured out if... Um, if the plans aren't going ahead to do an actually remake, this might kick them up the bum to that. Yeah, to exactly. Okay, there's enough there's people I, out there. I saw one the other day which was a zombie game and it was waves of zombies coming. But yeah. It was Simpsons hit and run and it was waves of homers. Oh, that's no amazing. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I know I'm dre- having a nightmare about <laughs> yeah. that. Guy. Yeah, so. But to check out anyway, our community picks and all the stories we talked about this week, they'll all be in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, I think it's time we went over to Thailand. A very early in the morning interview that Ravi did last week with Imagine Legend. John Gibson next on the Retro Hour podcast so you're listening to the Retro Hour and I'm here with the legendary John Gibson how are you doing John <laughs> I'm doing fine I think a bit hot but yeah I'm doing fine well we always ask a question of our guests first and that is what was your kind of first video game experience or the first time you like experienced some interactivity well that would have been a long time ago but 82 or something like that when I bought myself a, a ZX81, wrote my first game, which is called Fly in a Bottle. It was a, a, a little asterisk that was randomly moving around the screen, and you had a, some graphics that represented a bottle. You had to catch the fly in the bottle. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Yeah. Was that the machine you learnt to code on then? When I got that, I started writing some stuff in BASIC, and it was so bloody slow, it was unbelievable. So I had no choice but to learn Z80 Assembler. So I guess that was the first game I wrote in yeah. And was there like a instruction manual or a kind of a essential book that you used to uh, learn that Z80 code? Yeah, there was. I, I come across, came across a book called uh, How to Program Your ZX81 in Machine Code, and I guess that's how I, I, I learned it. I didn't have any um, like an editor or a, com- a compiler anything like that. I had to write out the instructions in uh, in hex on a piece of paper and then type them into the machine in a REM statement, and, and then run it. And you couldn't save the game on 781, it was too unreliable. So every time I wanted to play it, I had to type it in again. <laughs> My gosh, and, but, but that kept it efficient, right? And that was yeah. why uh, people wanted programmers in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's, where I, that's how I got my, my job at Imagine, because I was a machine code programmer, and they were a very rare breed in those days. Well, how did you find out about Imagine? Like, did you have previous knowledge of the company? No, well, I was doing a, a, an analyst programmer course in, in Liverpool. It was back in the day when the government tried to get retrained people with tops courses, of course. I uh, did this course, and I was, top, I was about 35. And they said, you're, you're a good programmer, John, but you'll never get a job because you're too old. Too old, at 35. Anyway, so I went for an interview for a job, um, a business, business machines company in Liverpool. And I was interviewed by Ian Hetherington, you know, Ian Hetherington yeah, of Signosis. Yeah. And he said to me, well, I, I, I had long hair, an earring and a beard then. I was a scruffy looking sod. And he said, well, I can't give you a job, but I know a man who can. And he sent me off to, to see Dave Lawson. And he said to me, uh, can you program 16K machine code at a month? And I said, I don't know. I'll give you a word if you like. He said, OK, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> so so was that kind of the basis of your job? If you didn't do that in a month, then uh, you, you wouldn't have got it. It turned out to be six weeks, actually, because uh, I didn't. Uh, I knew Z80, but I'd never been anywhere near a Spectrum before. And we had a, a development kit based on an Apple Euro 2E. That was it. So I had to learn how to use that as well. But anyway, I got the first one, more more finished in, uh, in six weeks. And the rest is history. <laughs> 
Wow, so yeah, you had to kind of learn these other machines because they would be porting to them as well. And um, did you did you find that really exciting, actually, kind of looking at these new machines like uh, Apple? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, as far as the Apple was concerned, it, it was just a development environment. You know, and it, so I didn't really have to learn much about that. But also I had to learn about the innards, innards of the spectrum. But the thing was, I was doing something I really, really enjoyed, and I was getting paid for it. So... You know, that's the best sort of job you can get in the world, isn't it? <laughs> well, also, that place was, like, really buzzing at that time, Liverpool in the 80s, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, with yeah. the kind of staff around. And like you said, a uh, very young staff. Um, how did you feel kind of being the older guy going into a very young space? Uh, to be honest, I didn't really think anything of it, although they did used to call me granddad because <laughs> they, they, they were in their 20s and I was in my mid-30s. But it, it, it was just a joke. It was... Great. It made me feel younger, I suppose. That's the thing. But actually, imagine there's three offices uh, that just, as they got bigger and bigger, they moved to a bigger office, but they didn't bother to get rid of the, the one there before. But finally, they ended up in uh, on the Moorfield Station, I think it was. It's enormous. It had two floors, enormous floors, and they just looked, always looked half empty because there wasn't enough people to fill the, the space. But yeah, there was lots of hijinks like. Um, uh, it was a, a marketing manager had a an office, one of those glass partitioned office, and Eugene Evans crew crawled up into the ceiling and uh, took a tire out and emptied uh, the contents of a ext- fire extinguisher on him. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't very amused. But that was the sort of thing that got up to him. It's crazy. Really. Well, well, were all the kind of separate teams then in in separate offices or different departments? Not really. Really, I mean, there was a couple of guys. Um, yeah, Steve Riding, who, and some other guy whose name I can't remember, they were tucked away somewhere doing a secret project for Atari. I never did find out what that was. But the rest of us were in this big open plan office. And I say the rest of us to begin with, there was only two programmers, apart from Ian, Dave Lawson, uh, Ian Witherburn and me, and, and then a couple of musicians, artists and so on. But um, it wasn't until... Imagine got this contract uh, with a magazine, the Dutch magazine, can't remember the name, but, but to produce a load of uh, cover tapes for their for their magazine, that's when they started getting loads of programmers in. So, so overnight it kind of changed? I guess, yeah, by the end of 1983 it was uh, really turning into something big. Mole Moore was your first title, and uh, it's kind yeah, of not yeah. not one for people who hate dentists. Um, what did you think when yeah. you first heard the concept of teeth pulling and was it kind of based on games like Plaque Attack? It wasn't based on anything really, I mean Dave Lawson said to me well go away and write the game and I thought what, what bloody game should I write? And I think he was having some dental treatment at the time, maybe that's what made me think about it and I, I it just came to me I suppose at the mouth opening and all the teeth and teeth going and changing colours they get more and more decayed but I did get a letter from uh, a Harley Street uh, dentist Saying that you know I was trivialising tooth decay, and, and <laughs> the kids, what are the kids going to do? Well, I mean, I, I wanted to, I wanted to write back and say sod off, something else. But like, in the end, I wrote back and said, you know, au contraire. I think when they see the game and they see what can happen if they don't brush their teeth, they will brush their teeth. <laughs> yeah, you would have thought that would be a, a great game for a sponsorship from like Colgate or someone like yeah. that. You know? <laughs> yes, of course, I didn't actually. You know, Maybe they didn't do sponsorship in those games, yeah. video games in those days. Oh, it took uh, four weeks to program that as well. Um, were the timelines and schedules, uh, what were they like at Imagine? It's very much a case of go away and write the game and come back when you're finished. You know, there's no milestones or any, any all sort of modern stuff where you sit down and plan it all out. There, with the game like Zoom, for example, there was a game design meeting that lasted about an hour when uh, me and Eugene Evans and Dave Lawson sat in a room thinking up this game. Well, rather, David already thought it up. And he was scribbling things on on the piece of uh, paper. And when he finished scribbling, he said, well, go away and write that <laughs> and come back when you finished it. <laughs> well, that, yes. was, that was a crazy impressive title as well because um, there was so yeah. much happening on the screen at the time. Um, that, like, hub, mm. hub design... Uh, where did that kind of come from? Again, 
I mean, in those days, I mean, my program was very empirical. Well, my game, game time was. I didn't go away and read books or anything like that. Like uh, people think I read a lot of army strategy books for soldiers, but I didn't. It was all empirical. I thought, well, people want to see us, uh, the gameplay in small details. That was that die bar thing on uh, Zoom as well. It just made the, the whole screen look really busy. It gave me more sense of panic. Well, it was a fantastically successful title as well. It like remained top yeah. 20 um, for about a year. Um, why do you think it was so successful? Well, I think a lot of the games... That, Imagine Arcadia was really successful because A, it was, uh, there weren't many titles around anyway and there were very, very few titles that uh, were sort of uh, pacey that uh, made you want to uh, manual dexterity games. You have to think quickly mm. and act quickly. And there weren't many games like that around. And that's why uh, Arcadia and Zoom were so successful. Yeah, you're right. They had that uh, real kind of arcade feel. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Well, you mentioned Stonkers there as well, and that was a, mm. a, a fantastic war game. Um, uh, did you have many influence off other titles, or, as you said, just kind of came up with it? Well, really, I think the only influence I had was a, there was a game on the Apple called Eastern Front, and I, uh, I just read an article about it, and they said that they did all their AI in the vertical interrupt routine. So, and as that, that you know, the limited amount of time there. So, what it boiled down to is, the longer the player took moving their move, the more refined the, uh, the computer's move to become. And that's why it uh, it was difficult to win, to be honest, because of that, because it, the the computer could come up with some really uh, horrible things to do. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But, so you, you had to get the pacing right of the kind of uh, gameplay. I mean, that was a lot of that was down to. Uh, Steve Kane, you know Steve Kane. He's a yeah. he was an imagined started off as an imagined artist, but he died uh, at a very young age of lung cancer. But um, he sat down with the game and tuned all the all the variables, how how fast things move, how much strength they got, and so on. And he played it for ages and ages, and uh, he loved the game in the end. You know, just after even even after he finished refining it, he uh, he just carried on playing it, and he he actually found a way. Of getting around the the crash bug, because it turned out to be uh, when you got when you when you went near the bridge, that was when it had a propensity to crash. But he he found this way. If you approached the bridge from a certain direction, it was okay. But I never got a chance to try and uh, fix that bug. Well, the use of kind of real time events in there was uh, groundbreaking as well. You know, the ticker at the bottom, kind of telling oh, yeah, you what yeah. was going on. How do, how did people react to that at the time? Well, I remember Steve saying it, it really added to the game because it added to the yeah, the urgency because you had messages coming across saying so and so, such and such a division is under attack, and then another one that said such and such a division is about to get wiped out, and you had to tell you, oh Christ, what am I going to do next? Where do I go first? Who do I help out first? Uh, and then things like um, such and such a division is running out of supplies, they're running out of ammunition, and that's and the whole thing made it. Uh, urgent and uh, and that's kind of standard in uh real-time strategies now you know uh construction yeah, yeah. on this building is complete and all of that kind of stuff you know i think it has been referred to as the first uh real-time strategy game i'm not sure if it deserves that title but it was at least one of the first anyway well uh frankie goes to hollywood was a very original title as well um yeah. how, how did the band kind of react to you know this game where you're going around liverpool uh in the 80s well, we never actually met the band. We, we met um, their manager, whose name escapes me. But um, what they did say through him was that if it was going to be uh, a game of little Frankies running around, they weren't interested. You know, they didn't want them being, being like um, the, the, the monsters in a game or anything like that. But then Ali Noble, uh, one of the art, Imagine Artists, came up with the... wasn't well, a Denton's artist, sorry. Came up with the this idea of using... Frankie goes to Hollywood's sort of philosophy, I suppose, with the the sperm and the um, they have four things. In there, I can't remember the, the details of it, but they had a, a philosophy. Frankie goes to Hollywood, and she thought up an idea of using the object of the game was to become a real person. You started off as a, a ghost, so to speak, and you had to collect all these bits and pieces to become, in Frankie Hollywood's way of putting it, 
a real person. And they loved that idea because you know, there was no Frank, none of the Frankie people in the game as such. And I think it's quite cool that it came with a, a second tape of music as well, so you could kind of yeah, listen yeah. to relax and then like play that at the same time. Yeah, that was David Wall of Ocean's idea to have a have that uh, that as an extra sort of thing. Well, how much did kind of piracy affect Imagine? I know you used uh, like Speedlock Two and a few of the uh, copy yeah. protections, but um, it was rampant at the time, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Yeah, I mean, you could go around. Uh, markets like uh, car boot sales and stuff like that and you'd find copies of games all over the place in fact uh, it was a, a BBC2 a program about the start about Imagine and then became a program about Ocean had a uh, David Ward wandering around markets showing all these uh, tapes and that's the trouble people somebody bought a game and then copied loads of times and that's all that money down the drain I mean, it didn't. It wasn't the reason why Imagine went down the tube, but down the pan. But uh, it couldn't have helped much. I'm, I've always been a sort of a sell-R-V person. I mean, I, for, for me, writing the game was the important thing. Uh, making money out of it was somebody else's job. Yeah, uh, so and it, if it's yeah. popular, it's popular, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Well, um, Gallivan uh, Cosmos Police as well was a kind of coin-op yeah. conversion. Um, tr- yeah. Trying to fit that on the specy must have been a hard task. Um, how did you decide on what to keep or what to strip out? Well, I think in the end I stripped out most of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually had the, the arcade, an arcade machine. Uh, Ocean had one sort of sent to my flat I was living in at the time so I could play the game in order to, uh, to write it for the Spectrum. And the first time I played it, I thought, hey, am I going to put this on the Spectrum? It wasn't a particularly good conversion, to be honest, because of that very reason. But Ocean were quite happy. They didn't pay me lots of money, so I'm not complaining. Also, kind of, um, imagine we're known for, like, flashy cars as well. And uh, you had oh, a yeah. Porsche 902. Um, what did yeah. you think, uh, what did your friends think of it when you kind of pulled up in that and they <laughs> told them it was because of programming? Well, yeah. Well, in fact, a funny story was, I, in a a multi-car pile-up on the M5 when I was in this, driving this Porsche. That's what they're doing me. Somebody, somebody stopped in front. I managed to stop uh, before I hit the plate car in front of me, but the guy behind me didn't. Anyway, the police came along and uh, they said, is this your car? I said, no, it's a company car. I said, Christ, what sort of company do you work for? <laughs> they give you Porsches. I was having a program game. Oh, my. <laughs> he must have thought that every... Every games company gave their Porsches away to their programming. Yeah, because it's legendary seeing all the pictures of like the old supercars yeah. and the uh, Imagine crew. <laughs> well, that was it. I mean, that's really what led to the Imagine's demise. Um, to a large extent, they just they had all this money. And they just spent it for fun. Dave Lawson got himself an American Express card, would you believe? And went to a Ferrari dealer. Um, oh. so, uh, <laughs> and so. Uh, you know, I want to buy a Ferrari with a American Express car. Oh, that would do nicely to you. <laughs> well, they'd also proposed uh, the Mega Game series, which was developing um, games to really crazy levels with a, a 1 to 8K RAM expansion. What What did yeah. you think about when you first heard the Mega Game plan? Well, I thought it was great, because uh, um, with all that extra memory on ROM, you could put loads of juicy graphics on it. The trouble was, the artist went bananas and they used it all up in no time at all. By the time Imagine went bust, the, the game was in the state where it had to be started all over again. Uh, the uh, official receiver said to me, is the game worth anything? And I said, well, honestly, I don't think so because it's, the development hasn't gone very far and, uh, and it'll have to be started again. Well, I, I remember Bandersnatch was one of the incredibly hyped titles with those um, yeah. kind of progress uh, diary-style adverts. Um, what happened with that game then? Well, that was it. it, it that was a game that um, was supposed to come out on the Spectrum, but didn't because uh, Imagine went bust. And uh, even if it hadn't gone bust, I doubt very much. If it would have uh, gone out, it would have taken a long time to develop. Plus... Uh, the cost of it would have been ridiculous. For, you know, it would have cost as much for the game as a bloody computer that's going to run it. <laughs> How much of it was uh, made? Well, 
the the game engine was was there. I mean, it's the same game engine I use on Zoom, and uh, I just refined it quite a bit. And there were some really you know, good graphics. There was a giant worm. There was it all took place in dome cities, and there was a mine underneath the dome cities, uh, and it, and there was a big a giant worm there. Like um, there was a film about that, wasn't there? Anyway, <laughs> and and they uh, there was a like a fat man, uh, and they, they, they were all, all uh, line drawings almost, like pixel graphics, but they're beautifully drawn by Ali and Steve and some of the other artists. Uh, but you know they they had loads of uh, frames of animation of these giant uh, sprites, and although the they got the engine, the render engine could handle it. The uh, memory couldn't, <laughs> so it just it ran out of memory almost before we started. The game itself was it never really act, it was never intended to have an ending. It was like just an, you just explored the environment. You met people, and and uh, you spoke to them with speech via speech bubbles, and then you, they they said might say something like go and have a look at so and so or go and go and talk to so and so. I think maybe you would have gone off looking for certain useful artifacts, but it was basically a never-ending adventure, but it never, it never ended as far as being written was concerned. <laughs> well, Charlie Brooker's um, taken it to a kind of legendary status with uh, Black Mirror. What did you think oh, about yeah. that episode? And uh, kind of, I've never, I haven't seen it actually. I haven't got Netflix, and uh, my son had it, but uh, by the time I got round to saying I'll take a look at it, he he got rid of it. You know, he, he wasn't using it, so he he stopped. So I haven't seen seen it at all, but. He kept, my son keeps saying to me, they've written a film about you, John. It's, 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 not, um, it's not really about me. It's about um, that, that, that time, that Bandersnatch time. And after all, the, 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 the movie, it, there was a, it was a young guy, not the old guy that I was in. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I'll have to do is I'll probably have to lend you uh, my login of Netflix because it is so fantastic and it kind of takes you back to that time period you know they recreate the uh 80s wh smith and stuff like that really yeah really? yeah so it, it's really good yeah and uh you pick what to play on your cassette player and stuff i think you'd like it Honestly, I did, what i couldn't understand is why anybody would, would make want to make a film about that because it's not exactly a national some sense of i'd say music paul mccartney iconic but it's a very limited audience i would have thought for it would be interested in a film like that. But it yeah, I, I think um, <laughs> uh, we had Charlie Brooker on the podcast, and he actually said, you know, all these all these TV shows take you back to like beautiful paradise places or Hollywood or you know Miami yeah. in the eighties, and he wanted to go to dull grey Britain in the eighties. Take some some uh, take people somewhere differently. Um, yeah. Well, did Imagine ever get visits from like the hardware owners or creators like Clive Sinclair or Alan Sugar or anybody up at the top? Not that I, I know. I mean, if they come, they would have been they would have seen Dave and Mark. So as far as I know, no. Although maybe no, I don't think I'm going to say maybe they might have got in touch with Sinclair because of the add-ons for Bandersnatch, but. No, that, that there was an in-house engineer who, who designed all that. So, no, it's hard. I know, no visit from uh, hardware royalty. Well, how much did you know about the demise of Imagine, and could you see it coming? Well, no, that's a crazy thing. It came as a complete and utter surprise to me. I think most of the people uh, did. Other people knew about it, uh, that Imagine was in on, nearly, nearly on hard times, but I was so busy. Right, and then the snatch, I was just in the world of my own. I didn't even think of anything of the fact that um, one month we got when we got paid, we got paid in cash because Dave Lawson and Mark Butler had gone round all the cash machines in Liverpool to draw up enough cash to pay everybody. It wasn't until uh, the official receipt, well, the receipt, the bailiff set turned up uh, that I realised what was something not very nice was happening. <laughs> Well, there was a, a legendary documentary where they actually filmed the bailiffs going in. Um, how yeah. did your friends and family kind of react to that? Because I can imagine most of the country must have seen that. I don't think they reacted. I mean, my mother was probably, well, concerned was, could I get another job? 
typical of a mother, isn't it? But, I mean, getting a job, that wasn't a problem. But no, I don't think, any, if, if anything, people were sort of uh, jealous because I've been on the TV, albeit in a, not a very nice way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear you and Dave Lawson did a kind of daring raid on The Office to get the uh, source code for uh, Cyclops and uh, Bandersnatch. Well, it wasn't quite that. <clears throat> it was actually um, Eugene Evans and I, uh, we, we wanted to uh, get our uh, development kits out of the office so we can take them to Dave Lawson's house in um, on the Wirral so we could carry on writing bandits. So that was the idea. But the bailiffs wouldn't let you take anything out of the office. But Eugene and I managed to grab uh, these big uh, development kits and, and run up, run to one of the back doors. I think that somebody <laughs> spotted us going out, shouting, "Oi, you know, come back!" So we went, we carried on, went through the door. Then we, we there was toilets out. We went in the toilets, went in a, a cubicle, uh, put the mich- stood on the stood on the um, the toilet seat with the development kit in their hands and, and waited until they'd gone away because they came in there looking at the toilet, couldn't see. Uh, I sit there, so they went out, and then we ran down the stairs, and uh, Eugene put his kit in his Lotus, and I put my kit in my Porsche, and off he went. <laughs> and and was it quite quite a big kit as well? Well, yeah, it was a, it was a Sage 4, it must be, <laughs> I mean, it's like six inches tall, about a foot wide, and about 18 inches long, and it's uh, it's, it's got a metal case, uh, and it was bloody heavy, the other an old-fashioned hard disc, which was very heavy. Well, how did you go about forming kind of dent and design? And uh, was there a sense of there's still work to be done after the collapse of Imagine? Yeah, well, after the collapse of Imagine, we all went off to all the programs and artists and we went off to Dave Lawson's house on, on the Wirral. He had quite a big house. And we were just, we carried on working. I mean, in fact, um, I was given, I was put in a room and told to get on with it. And everybody else was told, don't disturb John, he's got to finish writing the game. <laughs> anyway, everybody got a bit disillusioned about it. We were supposed to be uh, all going off to California to work, write the game for Atari, and that never came off. So eventually, I think it was Steve Kane and Ian Weathering decided enough was enough. And they they, they had the idea of Denton Designs. Um, they wanted me and the other the, the two female artists Karen and Ali to uh, be their employees, but I said, oh, no, if, you, if you're going to start a company, I want it to be my company as well. I'm not going to be any another employee. I want to be have some control over my future. So anyway, we ended up we all uh, formed it, except for Ian. Ian didn't want that. He wanted to have his own company. That um, he wanted to get his BMW back and all the rest of it. <laughs> so in the end, he he, he 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 jacked it in before we started. So there's just me. Uh, Kenny Everett, Steve Kane, Ellie Noble, Karen Davis uh, from Denton's. And how how much of the Bandersnatch and kind of a uh, Mega Games technology got like passed on or engines? Well, the the Bandersnatch engine was used for uh, Gift from the Gods. It was also used by uh, David Olson, right, by Signosis, the very early Signosis, for Batticus, um, I think it was Batticus, and. Uh, and it was Dave Lawson, he had my code, and he knew that uh, it, it was being used in from the gods, and he was going to—he threatened to, to sue us in it for, for plagiarism. <laughs> and I, I said, "What do you mean plagiarism? It's my code." But anyway, uh, it never, nothing, nothing ever came of it. So there was two games, uh, uh, one on the Amiga, one on the Spectrum, using this, the same engine, my engine. <laughs> And was that your favourite project at Denton? Uh, I think it probably is, yeah. I mean, that and uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it was my favourite because all that work I put into that band engine wasn't wasted and it worked really well. All the graphics that like Ali Noble did for Bandersnatch, she did the same sort of thing for the hero in uh, Gift from the Gods. Well, uh, you mentioned Psygnosis a lot, and you kind of went and did some work with those guys as well. Um, what? How, how different was the culture from Imagine? Uh, well, a lot different. It's, it's a bit saner. And by the time I joined Psygnosis, it was a fairly big company, and it had sort of managers and 
and gophers and stuff like that. So, uh, the, the, I mean, the first time I, I had a job interview, if you like me, Cygnosis was very soon after it was formed with David Olson and uh, Ian Ellington. All they could offer me was uh, write a game and we'll give you some money when, when it's finished and, and sold. And I thought, I can't do that. I, got, I, got, I can't live on fresh air. So I, that's, I ended up working for a company that Steve Kane and Kenny Everett formed and a, a few other like micropros. Just a lot of freelance work apart and freelance work with Ocean as well. Eventually, I, I wrote. I think I wrote to Ian Ellington at Cygnosis and said, oh, give, "Give us a job, mate." You know? <laughs> anyway, I went and saw him. He said, "Yeah, you can have a job." <laughs> and that was it. Started working for Cygnosis. You kind of uh, got into a new world with Cygnosis because it, it was the CD-ROM world. So um, you worked on Microcosm, yeah. which was one of the early yeah. CD-ROM titles. Uh, was was that a, a challenge coming from you know machine code? To- Oh, that was in machine code as well. The um, the FM Towns that it was developed were written for. It was a PC effectively in FM Towns, and the Fujitsu wanted us to use their their libraries, if you like, to write the game. And we said that's impossible. You know, the game will crawl. Well. Uh, you can't do it like that. So we had to to um, do it in machine code. So I said I need a, a lot of all the documents about the hardware. I turned up with this pile of books about two foot high. It took a long time to get your head around it. And but when I did, I, I what I first did was to convert my Spectrum and uh, what was also an Atari engine into for the FM towns. And then after that, it was quite easy to write the game. The, you just had to um, deal with the streaming stuff on the CD and packing, packing images so that they could be streamed or quickly enough because they were only like 150k a second CDs in those days. And that, that's fantastic thinking. You use the same engines for the Spectrum yeah. kind of modified in the future for early yeah, CD-ROM yeah. Um, access. Well, that's what uh, people do today. I mean, look at um, Unreal Engine, for example. Yeah. That's uh, that takes it to its to its extreme. You can you, know, you could get your dog to write a game with Unreal Engine because <laughs> it's it's all done for you. But that's, it's not it's not amazing. I suppose the difference was today you could write an engine in C plus plus or whatever, and it will end up. You can put it on any machine, like because it will be compiled into the machine code that that uh, computer uses. Back, but back then, you couldn't do that. You had to sort of rewrite the uh, the particular from a particular machine in in the particular assembler, which is why I ended up writing cell eighty sixty five hundred two. 68,000 for the Atari and Amiga, and 8086 for Intel 8086 for the uh, FM10. Well, are you still are you still programming these days? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm retired now, and I don't I don't want to spend the rest of my turn my time sitting staring at the wall or watching the TV. So I've got a little office upstairs, which is where I am now. At, in fact, at the moment, I'm in the middle of doing a rewrite of uh, Stonkers for Android. Oh wow! I don't. It'll probably take me a year to do it because I don't. I don't. I don't come up here eight, nine to five, five days a week. I just come up here now and again when the wife elected me, because she um, she doesn't like the idea that I'm doing something that I used to get paid for for nothing. <laughs> so I keep saying, I keep saying, oh no, I'm going to sell the game when I finish it. But I mean, I wrote. I've also written a. A game called uh, Spaced Out, but it's not called Spaced Out. But it was a game I wrote for Spectrum way back, and it was never very successful. So you probably never heard of it. But um, I've done an Android version of that, and I'm just going to see if uh, anybody wants to publish it. If they don't, I'll, I'll just uh, play it myself. <laughs> Have you been uh, keeping an eye on the Spectrum Next stuff at all? I did to begin with. Um, I think ultimately what put me off was. It wasn't really a spectrum. It, 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 they'd done so much to it, you know, adding sprites and God knows what else. That it, it was it was no longer a spectrum. It was a, a sort of um, a poor man's console, you can almost call it. Anyway, I I did play around with it for a while. I started writing stonkers on that as well, but then uh, there wasn't much documentation around it, and uh, every time they they did an upgrade, I needed a new board or whatever 
and they keep they kept saying, "Oh, I'll send you in the ball, John," but it never arrived. So in the end, I just said, "I'll sort that out. I'll do some Android stuff." Yeah, it's hard being an early adopter, isn't it? Because you get none of the yeah, documentation, yeah. you get uh, none of the support that's uh, maybe in a year or so will be there, you know. Well, I think as well, I don't know if it's still the case, but I heard that the Spectrum Next wasn't going to go out until general release. It wasn't going to be stuck in shops that the general public can buy. It was just going to be for the people that uh, sponsored the, the project. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's the case, and then they're going to try and see if they can get it out into the public. Yeah, because that, so, well, I thought, well, if I write a game for it, only, only 10 people are going to see it or play it. And uh, and I can't make any money out of it. The, the idea was to be, you know, to do it for the fun of it, sort of thing. But uh, I mean, I did it for the fun of it for like 35 years. <laughs> I don't want to do it for the fun of it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, John. Uh, thanks for coming on no, this week. It's fantastic that uh, I haven't had to say, "Oh, I can't remember that." I can't remember that because I really thought I would. But I suppose it all comes flooding back when, when you. When people like you, you know, start talking to me about all those times, all that time ago, all the memories flood back. Uh, and it was a great time, a great, great time.